Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest, Dr. Bankhead Kendall. Dr. Bankhead Kendall received her MD from Ross University of Medicine, followed by residency in general surgery, completed at the University of Texas at Austin, and a fellowship in surgical critical care at Mass General Hospital. She is now, as of the end of her fellowship in 2020, an assistant professor of trauma and acute care surgery at Texas Tech University. I encountered Dr. Bankhead Kendall on Twitter, where I was taken by her honesty and wit. She uses Twitter very well to tell her story, and I wanted to speak with her here about her journey to medicine, her experiences of starting out as an attending physician during a national and international crisis, and hopefully, and perhaps most importantly, the healing power of glitter. So Dr. Bankhead Kendall, Brittany, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Yes, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. This is it's always a fun day to talk about glitter. <laughs> and oh my gosh, too. you have no idea. I have so many stories about glitter. We could go on and on. We can sh- we can save that for the end when we might need a pick-me-up, um, which is how I okay. use it basically in my life. So could you tell us about yourself, aside from the more biographical info that I've provided above, how you came to choose medicine as a career? Did you grow up in a scientifically-minded family, something like that? Yeah, so I there's no one scientifically minded. My dad um, is a petroleum engineer. Um, mm. There was a lot of a lot of math <laughs> and a lot okay. of um, a lot of that uh, sort of thing, and I that really led me to move around a lot as a kid. Um, so, what does petroleum I, engineer mean? What is is that like? Someone he, who works so with- he works with um, petroleum, oil, natural gas, um, and helps. Yeah. Dig like machines that find he designs grid. machines or is it like a safety no, thing? He, no. he, um, oh, now you're going to put me on the spot. He, no, I just wonder yeah, like, he is he, an, he's an engine. Yeah. When I think of engineers, yeah. I think of them building like turbines or something, but I don't suppose you need one of those for patrol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, he, yeah, he was, I, I mean, from what I understand about yeah. his career, it's, I, I think he was part of, um, being out in the field in the um, with the drilling wells and the drilling units and figuring out those machines there, and then he moved into the office setting where he would help come up come up with um, the equations and the equipment and everything to get to just the right depth in the earth and how to um, control the you know, the settings around it and all the machinery and making sure they were safe. And um, then he moved on to um, more of a managerial position and um, we moved internationally. So I I grew up moving around and and lived in Argentina for a while. Um, Mm -hmm. And so kind of picked up on Spanish and it really opened my eyes and opened my world. Um, And then I started doing some international mission work, and then uh, kind of moved into doing an internship in Honduras, um, which was my first kind of glimpse into real medicine um, in another country and really sparked my, um, kind of validated my idea that I wanted to do medicine. I thought I did early on, but that really solidified it. Um, And so then I Um, finished undergrad at Texas A&M and I went and did a kind of study and intern abroad over in Spain Um, and got to spend the summer in a a GI clinic and studying at a university locally there. Um, 
and yeah, and then that just all kind of led to to here. <laughs> okay, so you've kind of been all around. Yeah, I just yeah, uh, I wondered how um, how math and sciencey petroleum engineering is, but it sounds like it's just as the math and sciencey as all the other engineering fields. So it's um, super I, hardcore, and I yeah. I couldn't even begin to <laughs> to understand. It doesn't sound like obviously, that would, yeah, I would be a nervous wreck doing that job. I'm glad there are people <laughs> that can do it well. Uh, I know. Math, math yeah. I, was something I could always get through. Never something I enjoyed. So you know, it's yeah. good to know your strengths. Same. Um, so how do you choose, how did you choose surgery? Um, and I'll just editorialize here for just a second, because when I was going through medical school, honestly, I did, I, I had a story somewhat similar to yours and that I had traveled a bunch in Latin America and I, I spoke Spanish. I was a Spanish major actually in college and, and I thought I was going to do primary care. And then I got into that setting Uh and I thought, you know, this really isn't for me. But when I was considering other things to do, surgery was never on my list, which I'm kind of like, when I thought hard about talking to you, I, I don't think I ever considered it. And my experiences in medical school with surgery, and then I think even farther back into medical school with things like anatomy and those kinds of classes never felt welcoming to me in a way that made me feel Uh like it was something I could even do. So you're younger than I am, so maybe it's changed. Um, (laughs) But then again, um, maybe it was a person or or like an experience you had. So I'd like to hear about how you ended up choosing surgery. Yeah. I So like you, I actually went into medical school thinking I wanted to do primary care. Mm-hmm. Um, I had worked in a family physician's office. I liked that he kind of did a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really attracted me to family medicine. Um, but then I, uh, kind of like you described, I got into the anatomy lab, um, and it really, I was really drawn to it and I was drawn to the kind of hands-on aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, and, and so it, it was kind of in the back of my mind, but then, then I got to rotations um, and I started to go through all of them. And honestly, I liked all of them. <laughs> I really mm-hmm. liked everything. I liked psych. I liked internal medicine and, and I got to surgery and I liked that too. Um, and additionally, I liked that you could use your hands to fix somebody and you didn't have to rely on them taking a pill or um, going to get an infusion. Like you could actually do something to fix them. Mm-hmm. And so I loved that aspect. And then I was like, well, but I also want to be a doctor. Like I, I mean, that's great and all to like cut on people and to fix them, but I want to be a doctor too. I spent so much time filling my head with lots of knowledge and, um, then really quickly realized on my surgery rotation that surgeons are pretty smart and they, they, uh, they know a lot about a lot of different pathologies and they are, um, as one of my attendings in residency called it, they are the bat people of the hospital. They're Batman, they're Batwoman. If you need something, you call a surgeon. And so um, whether it's in the ICU or the trauma bay or the ER or the depths of the psych unit, I mean, a surgeon can help. You know a place where you're, we never that. call you to help us though? The gross room. And you're glad about that. That is definitely true. Or the morgue. <laughs> that is true. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That is true. Uh, but yeah, I lo- I loved that aspect that you could actually do something with your hands to fix people and um, really go into the depths of medicine. And and that's why I did a fellowship in the ICU to even take that a step further. Um, And so I love that my, my training and now my job encompasses every bit of, of medicine. Yeah. It's a, I like the, the way I think of, um, you know, like 
back when people were talking about the pandemic and they were talking about, well, who's going to be taking care of these very sick patients, which I know you and I are going to talk about in more depth later. And people thought, well, you know, it's going to be pulmonologists. They're going to be the ones taking care of these people. Mm -hmm. And then I I thought to myself, well, actually, when you think about an ICU, there's maybe uh, five different kinds, probably more than that, kinds of doctors, like anesthesiologists can hang up there. Totally. All the surgical critical care folks can hang up there. Like there's a bunch of different people coming together to take care of these very sick patients. So, um, and you all have, you know, the knowledge of the ICU, which is in and of itself, a completely different kind of medicine in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, you have the surgical expertise and someone else has the, you know, uh, anesthesiology kind of expertise, but, um, it's a very specific kind of um, acuity and I think mindset that leads someone to be successful in that setting, which oh, I will freely well, admit. Thank you. I am not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and that yeah. is, that is one of the cool things about the the fellowship that I did at MGH. Yeah. Um, a lot of it was, uh, anesthesiologists were a lot of our attendings. Yeah. Um, so getting yeah. that, you know, really next level. Of, and I had great surgical ICU attendings too, but, but to yeah. get that different perspective from an anesthesiologist, yeah. from an analogous sedative point and yes. um, critical care standpoint and to, yeah. and honestly, to also talk shop and just hear about, you know, everything that they do in the operating room that you don't even know is going on. Um, exactly. Not just above, above the curtain or drape. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I imagine that because the way that fellowships work and how you apply for things that you chose your fellowship ahead of COVID hitting, like well ahead of all that yes. happening, but then it yeah. kind of came upon you, you know, January slash February, cause you were in New England where I live as well. I live in yeah. Rhode Island, which is not far from Boston and, you know, with uh-huh. the, um, Oh, you're going to help me out with the company that had the outbreak in Boston early in the pandemic. Oh, yeah. So you yeah. all were sort of like Biogen. on, yeah, Biogen, yeah, Biogen. on we're on, we were on the map, whether or not we wanted to be. So, um, yeah, that happened early. So you would have been about halfway through your fellowship when that happened and you, there's no oh, way yes. you could have known this was going to happen. So nope. can you, um, walk me through, you already talked a little bit about how you chose to specialize in this area, but, um, mm-hmm. what was that like? Like, what was your, um, what was your fellowship year maybe like from July through January when you got to be a normal yeah. person trying to be a fellow and absorb all that knowledge? And then when the yeah. wave crested on you, how did it change? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had so much fun interviewing for fellowship. It was one of the funnest times in life, um, to see so many cool places. And I, I really decided on MGH because, um, you know, it's this Harvard affiliated program. It is the top dog of all things academia. And I, I was pretty sure I wanted to be an academic surgeon. And, and so obviously I knew I'd get great training there, but then I also, I wanted something totally different. And, you know, when you're in a certain geography for a lot of your training, you start to realize everyone kind of does things the same way and we all have our Mm -hmm. nuances. And, and so I really wanted to shake it up and, and push myself. Um, So moving from Texas to, uh, Boston definitely did that for me. Yes. Um, and then, so getting there, I started my surgical ICU training. Um, we, you know, I worked in a, both a surgical, complete surgical ICU, as well as a mixed surgical and medical ICU, which was kind of a neat draw to MGH, um, because I, I got some medical ICU training in addition to my surgical ICU training, uh, which was good again, to work with pulmonologist and um, to take care of some of those things like DKA and acute COPD exacerbations that we don't always see in the 
surgical ICU, but that can sometimes creep in there with trauma patients or acute care surgery patients. So that was good. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was busy like any fellowship is, um, and you're tired like any fellow is. Uh, But then February came, there was one isolated incidence of COVID and um, it was kind of fine. Everybody breathed a sigh of relief. And then Biogen happened (laughs) and it was March. And I remember kind of the daily emails started picking up and schools shut down and we got our first um, patient in the hospital. And I was on nights that week. I still remember. Um, And it was just, it was kind of an eerie feeling to know COVID is in the building. Um, Mm -hmm. And as the kind of airway team on call we were at the very beginning, you know, there were three, four, five COVID patients in the hospital. And we were all trying to figure out what are we going to do? When are we going to intubate these people? How are we going to yeah. manage their airways? We don't know. We don't have any data on yeah. how to do this. And so I'd kind of do nightly rounds and go and just watch them through the glass. And it was just, it was just the craziest feeling. And then within the next week to two weeks, it just surged and we had so many patients and there was no way we were going to be able to run on everyone every night. And we just, we were inundated and it was, mm-hmm. I mean, you said a wave, but it was really a tsunami because <laughs> it mm-hmm. was all at once and it was all hands on deck and those hands weren't enough hands. And, um, it was, it was catastrophic. I mean, I, 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 it's all I knew <laughs> for a fellowship, right. but, um, you know, looking back, it was, it was really terrible and it was a lot of work. And I, you know, I, I had so much support from my attendings, my institution, um, MGH and partners at that time was fantastic in getting us PPE. Um, mm-hmm. and even with all of that, it was still so hard. So I can't imagine the you know, the other hospitals who were dealing with that without the right amount of PPE and, and administrative support. Mm -hmm. And uh, you said it was all hands on deck. I assume that your hands were some of the more experienced with things like innovation. I remember, I mean, you know, thoughts were spiraling through my head. I was thinking like, surely they're not going to want someone like me to come work there, but (laughs) I did hear stories and, and thank goodness they didn't. But, um, there were stories about, um, you know, medical students sort of graduating early to help and, and that, that kind of trend of sort of offloading experienced faculty off of maybe less acute floors to kind of push them towards the folks like you who needed extra help. So, um, was that kind of thing happening? And, And if so, was it, people that you would have otherwise worked with, but they were just maybe off service or was it folks that you hadn't worked with much before that? Yeah. Um, for the most part, it was people that I had worked with. Um, mm-hmm. the med, med student thing, like you're talking about mm-hmm. at the beginning in the spring, it was like, you know, med schools were pulling their students out of those situations because you didn't have to expose anyone who didn't have exactly. to be. Um, But then in this, you know, in the later spring, in the summer, then it became, wait, this is still ongoing and we need help. And now not only do we need help, but we've got people who are staff who are sick. And so now we're even shorter handed and these people are almost graduating medical school. So might as well let them and bring them on deck. So um, and then transition, you know, a little bit earlier. So I think every institution did that a little bit differently, but it was really odd. Um, 
having that happen in the middle of all of that. And I can't imagine how tough as a medical student to. I know. To and it was weird how they were all there one day and then they were just gone the next day. Yes. Just no students yes. and trainees. And, um, yeah. it, it was and how do you like, learn? How I don't do you know. Learn I don't know. I think they were, for everything. I know. You, you got to yeah. be able to look at people, you know, and yeah. even as a pathologist, they were, you know, advising most of us at the beginning not to sit across the microscope from one another, which is how you learn pathology. Mm-hmm. We were trying to do it on Zoom and it, you know, it's gotten a lot right. better, uh, but it, it's just, uh, you, you take those experiences away. But um, someone early on in, in the podcast talked to me and said uh, that, you know, he thought that anybody who graduated med school in 2020 or had an experience in 2020, it was always going to have an asterisk by it. And it was going to say like, this happened during COVID. And it's not like we all didn't live through it. You know, what kind of right. person would hold it against somebody if they say, well, you know, I never learned to innovate somebody because they didn't want me sticking my face into a COVID patient's right. mouth and be like, okay, we can work around that. You know, we can, we can right. teach you now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Vaccinated or whatever it may be. Um, and, and the, uh, the feeling of the hospital, like you said, you were, you felt at the beginning, like you didn't know what to do and you were just kind of going to watch people to just figure out what they were, how they were being sick basically. And that, Mm -hmm. that feeling of stillness in the hospital and like a quiet panic. I don't know. And I was not even in the middle of it like you were, but it was such a weird feeling, wasn't it? It was. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially on the coast. I, you know, everybody, in the world um, has felt this, but at least what I can identify with is like here along the coast, these coastal cities where it really hit hard and fast early on. Yes. And it was yeah. just eerie. Yeah. It was um, eerie. Wasn't there was, it? it was like, yeah. it was like the feeling on a night shift, which I haven't, thank goodness had to do in a long time. Cause I, I don't do what you do, but that feeling between like three and 4am where you knew you were one of the only people awake. Yeah. That, that feeling, that weird yeah. feeling of like violent yeah. or something. Yeah. It was yes. very odd. Yes. Very odd. Ominous. So, <laughs> yeah. So we're, um, we were talking about your journey into medicine, your experiences during your fellowship. Um, you've been tweeting lately about being, uh, well, first of all, on Twitter, you're very open about your experiences. You tweet about your family. You tweet about um, totally being a young, fa- uh, young attending. You tweet about most recently or very recently, uh, being vaccinated. So, mm-hmm. um, can you tell me about uh, the experience of getting, I think you are full, you've gotten both doses. So what, what yes. was that like for you and how are you feeling about that? Oh my goodness. It's, it's so weird because it's like, it's a little bit, the whole thing feels a little bit hunger games, like getting in line. <laughs> and then the other part feels like Willy Wonka golden ticket. Like I got one. <laughs> um, are you volunteering so as really, tribute? That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little bit of both. Like I got the golden ticket, but I'm also tribute and like, I don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't it's matter. We'll weird. see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's hard, you know, being one of the first people vaccinated. Um, it is weird. And I, I did read the full Pfizer document. I got the Pfizer vaccine and I read the full Pfizer document. So did my husband um, because we, we're people of science and we, you know, are going to trust a, a document that is provided with graphs and statistics. And um, we wanted to read it for ourselves. We didn't want people telling us what it said or um, Mm -hmm. what that looked like. Um, And we were both, you know, really, really happy with the science that was presented and felt like, especially from everything we've seen that no, and I've really said this from the beginning, no long-term implication of a vaccine could ever be as bad as that of COVID. (laughs) So, um, 
So I, I felt happy and hopeful and um, grateful for the vaccine. And, um, it, but it was a weird feeling getting it. I was asked to um, get it with a, a few other attendings in a nice boardroom with cameras all around. And, oh, okay. Uh, okay. You know, like a publicity spot. And, yeah. You know, I've got tears coming down my face because I just am so happy to finally be a little less afraid. And, but then it's like, you know, down the hall and downstairs, there are people on a ventilator for this same disease and they're going to be withdrawing life support soon. And it's just, it's like the oddest thing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a little like being on the battlefield and like, you know, this troop gets the the white surrender flag and they're good and going home. But like the other people back there haven't gotten it yet and they're still dying and fighting. And yeah, or you, know, you like get some sort of. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like having magic armor when everyone around you is still susceptible you know, to bullets or something, right? Um, it, yeah, and 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 you said you would be a little less afraid. Um, what is uh, that? That's something that I struggled with early on too. Was was just going to work like everything was normal before masking, before universal masking, and just thinking, when am I going to get sick, or is someone going to mm-hmm. get me sick and not even realize they were sick? So, how do you deal with that? fear and still do your job? Oh, I, it was really hard. And I've, I've gone through waves of it throughout the pandemic. At the beginning, it was, it was laying in bed at night next to my husband, who was an ER doctor, like I said, and, and it was literally, you know, redoing our will and Hey, if I'm on event and this happens, I need you to do this. And, um, oh. you know, we, I definitely saw, households where both parents were on ventilators. And so the kids were in the hospital just to have a place to go because there was no safe place to go. And like, that is terrifying. Um, I it just, you know, you see all this firsthand and at the beginning we didn't know what was going to happen. And so I just, I had to make arrangements really early on kind of anticipating that that would happen. And then trying to think two steps ahead, you know, like, women are really good at doing of, Hey, if my parents have to come here, I should probably, you know, tape all that information to the front of the door so that they don't have to come into this house. Cause then it would be exposure for them. And, um, oh, man. just, you know, trying to, trying to be a, a mom and a human and a, and a physician and a good daughter all at once. Um, it was a lot. Um, and then and it, on top of all that is like the actual medicine, right? Because you you study and you know what to do as an ICU fellow, but then there's this new disease and it's the only thing you're treating and it's encompassing everything that you're doing, but you don't know anything about it. And so really early on, we had these WhatsApp groups with surgeons and anesthesiologists from across the world, and they would give us information like, hey... It looks like lower tidal volume ventilation, just like we treat ARDS is working the best. Give it a shot. And we'd be like, okay. And then they would say, hey, just FYI, we're seeing sudden cardiac death and people are just dying um, after you think they're doing better. So watch for arrhythmias, keep them on telemetry. And we're like, okay. And then they'll say, hey, we're seeing spontaneous perforations um, in the jejunum. Uh, keep an eye out for it. They don't always develop a lactic acidosis. And we'd say, okay. <laughs> and that's, that's yeah. the only way we were getting information. So um, I exhausted myself reading that even when I wasn't 
on shift, you know, just trying to make sure you weren't missing say, something. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, there was no textbook <laughs> or. Yeah. And, yeah. and you talked about, you, you talk about the early days and sort of collecting information, but then you, you made, uh, you made mention that no effects of this vaccine could be worse than the long-term effects of COVID. Are you seeing those uh, or. Oh my goodness. Um, yes. <laughs> like what, cause the patients you see, I uh, assume are very sick. Right. And so once they start to get a little bit less sick, they go to a different part of the hospital, but uh, what are you learning about the long-term effects? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's kind of, so again, as a trauma surgeon and an ICU doctor, I've seen both the ICU COVID high ventilator requirements patients, but then I've also seen, you know, trauma patients that are coming in who are asymptomatic before mm-hmm. and, you know, now they just are getting a chest X-ray and it does not look normal. Or I'm seeing a patient who was fine at home for months, never had shortness of breath, and they come in and now they've got a pneumothorax, a collapsed lung mm-hmm. um, from their COVID. <laughs> or um, people who were in the ICU for a while, they got better, they went to rehab, and now presenting with this spontaneous perforation in their bowel and the ill effects of that. Um, so I've, I've seen the gamut. I mean, I think a lot of emergency general surgeons have seen a lot of these. Um, and and maybe not um, normally would a, uh, recent history of a viral pneumonia or whatever you want to call COVID, I guess it's not just mm-hmm. pneumonia. It seems like it's sort mm-hmm. of systemic, but a viral infection perhaps would maybe not be at the top of your differential diagnosis in any other year for a jejunal perforation. Right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'm not a right. surgeon, but that has been on mine for the old no. step two exam or whatever. Um, that's, yeah, that's crazy. Cause I, I would think, uh, yeah, that, that, that would land on some other kinds of physicians. You're hearing about neurologic side effects, things like that. Maybe neurologists right. are treating those patients, but you're actually saying that people are presenting again, or maybe for the first time to the hospital with acute yes. surgical illnesses that are a side effect exactly. of COVID. I yep. didn't really realize that that's, uh, that's incredible. Yeah. And cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about fear and working through fear. And I think the whole country is feeling fear, but I'm wondering when you are the kind of doctor you are, I assume that you are really good at compartmentalization. You can correct me if I'm wrong. When you're mm-hmm. doing your job, are you afraid? Or does that kind of stuff happen when you have a moment to stop and breathe? I think it's only when there's a moment to stop and breathe. I, I think yeah. just like you said, you can't, there is no room. Um, and especially in the early days, there's, or, or when any geographic um, region is surging, there's no room for um, time to be fearful. And um, you just have to keep moving forward and use the PPE that you are given and follow the protocols. And um, I think it's, you know, it's later whenever, for me, it's when I'm around my kids and Mm -hmm. um, trying to do decon (laughs) before I see them. Um, and especially early on, um, right. That's, that's when it's the most difficult for me. Yeah. When you're around your kids. Yeah. It's, Mm -hmm. that's a hard decision to make. And, uh, you know, there, there are folks who have the luxury of maybe creating a bubble of folks, but it's, uh, not practical for a family where the, both parents are physicians. Um, and, and I think your kids are small, like my kids and that, 
Mm-hmm. That was something we struggled with as well. So um, yeah, that's, man, I can't wait until the vaccine is widely distributed. I know. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to that day. I saw a coworker I today. Uh, I walked by her desk and I said hello to her and she had just yanked her mask down to take a sip of water and was yanking it back up. And I just looked at her and I said, is that a skill that you ever thought you were going to be good at? Because she was really good at it. You know what I mean? And I was like, yeah, this is just 2021. Here we are. You're like a proficient mask water drinker. She said, oh, you didn't walk by a few minutes earlier when I tried to shove the straw through my mask. (laughs) Okay. Okay. We won't have to talk about that. Uh, Totally. I can put a mask on one handed now. That's, that's my new party trick. It's like like an N95 mask. Or just like a surgical, uh, like no, a, just a regular one. one. Oh, okay. okay. The old yeah. N95 still takes. And you know the the funny thing about N95 masks. I'm sure for you it's a very different experience. But for me, the uh-huh. time that I wore those the most was when I was doing autopsies. And so the smell uh, of the inside of an N95 mask takes me just back to my autopsy yes. rotations, which is not my favorite thing in the entire world. Yeah. So there's some, uh, I don't know, some like some sort of olfactory visceral reaction that I have to that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah. Anyway, I'm grateful for the yeah. smell now, but. I know. Um, yeah. Not funny. <laughs> yeah. So how has this experience, so you have, you're a, a two-parent household with children and your, your spouse is also a physician. How has this affected, I mean, besides laying in bed and talking about your wills, which sounds like a yeah. Really harrowing experience. You're in your thirties. <laughs> oh my God. I know that's so terrible. Yeah, um, I know. How else, I mean, how has it impacted your family as much as you want to talk about that? Yeah. It, you know, it's, um, it's funny you say that. Cause actually last night, my eight year old son, um, kind of had a moment and he was crying, uh, which is not his normal. Um, but he came out of uh, out of his room and kind of cried and said, mom, I miss you so much. I feel like you're still gone so much. And, um, I know that you need to be at the hospital and working to get people better, but I really miss you. And I wish I had more time with you. And that is for any working, not even mom, any working parent, that's already really tough. Um, but then how do you, you know, as a, as a working parent to, you feel like you're putting one or the other on a pedestal a little bit. It's like, am I choosing to spend more time taking care of other people's family members or am I choosing time to spend at home with my own children and raising them? Um, And And then the third side of that coin, which I constantly ask myself is, should I take care of myself? Right. Right. Because, because I mean, I, I, and it's a, it's not something that we talk about as women and as parents, but the choice you're left with is I have X number of hours for work. I have X number of hours for my family. Should I cut down on my sleep? Should I cut down on the time when I'm doing whatever it is that I enjoy, whatever that is, or, um, and, and I think as a, as my personality is to cut the stuff that belongs to me absolutely Mm -hmm. first. You know what I mean? And then, um, and then fighting that, that urge and, you know, the pull for you to be at work right now is even bigger than it normally is. I'm sure to mm-hmm. sort of answer that call of your colleagues. Cause you know what it feels like to be there and for them to not have help. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And, um, yeah, it's, it has definitely been tough. And then it, you know, the same with, I mean, that's my children, but my parents, I'm, I'm really close with my parents and I have not actually hugged my parents since, um, 
I guess July of 2019, (laughs) Uh, which is really tough because I, you know, they helped me move in um, in Boston and, you know, we kind of said our bye and see you later and then COVID hit. And then I was, you know, just a Petri dish as far as I felt like uh, and couldn't get near them. And so I briefly saw them in an airport when I dropped my kids off for three and a half months um, when I was, you know, going back to focus on work and then have not, I didn't hug them then. And I haven't hugged them in a really long time. And that's been, you know, psychologically, that is really tough. That is really tough. And they're, uh, yeah. Talk about taking away the things that make you happy, your support system. Right. So, um, but they are at least maybe opening up vaccines to persons 65 and older. If your parents fall into that age range, maybe they can get the uh, vaccine and Maybe you can think about yes. ways to change that. I don't know. I know. <laughs> but it's oh, it's know. a really hard time. It's it's really interesting timing. I I I sort of feel like it's um surreal that life has continued on for in so many ways, even though so many yeah. people are sick, so many people are dying. Um, you know, like yesterday I was watching that we're recording this the day after the inauguration. I was watching that and I was thinking I feel normal for a few minutes. And then as soon as it was, it was over, I was like, okay, well back to our actual reality where mm-hmm. things are not at all normal. So yeah, um, definitely. So um, to shift off of strictly talking about COVID, I thought we could talk a little bit about your areas of research. You're, you have published and in areas relating to trauma surgery, not surprising, but also medical education, some about COVID-19 can you tell me, um, especially as someone who uh, had maybe what some people in the United States would consider a non-traditional medical education track, considering that yeah. your medical school was outside of the U.S. Um, I And I say this from a place of someone who feels solidarity with you, that I was uh-huh. not someone who was initially interested or felt comfortable or secure being interested in research. Um, uh-huh. How did you kind of break into that area, what interested you about it? And um, what do you find most rewarding about doing research? Yeah, I wanted nothing to do with research (laughs) early on. I didn't understand it. I didn't like it. I found it intimidating. Um, It was like this thing for really smart people that I was never going to be. I I just, I didn't identify with it at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I, so I went to medical school in the Caribbean and, um, then I did a preliminary year, um, as a prelim surgery resident in Dallas. And, um, that was when I first started a little bit of research and doing, you know, just some data entry for, um, a paper actually on open extremity fractures and antibiotics. And I remember it was the first time it was like, oh, there's this clinical question that we talk about in M&M and in conference and everyone kind of argues about it. And this is a study that we're doing to see yeah. if we're right or not. And it was yeah. it was kind of a light bulb moment for me of, oh, that's what research is, is these clinical questions and you get to answer them. Um, and so I took that with me and then I, I started my categorical year as a resident um, and did a little bit more, um, as a, more in the surgical education realm and, um, for things that I found interesting and they got picked up and I got to give an oral presentation and that really 
jump-started my um, research endeavors and I just haven't stopped since. And since my um, intern year then, I just keep a little notepad um, in my iPhone, um, Mm -hmm. the notes section. And anytime something irritates me (laughs) when I'm rounding (laughs) or that I say, oh, we don't have any good evidence for this, but um, I write it down and it's my list of go-to things for things I want to study or research later. And um, and so that's what I always tell the residents and med students too, is don't do research projects for other people. Do it for yourself. Do it for things that you're passionate about. Do it for things that, that bother you or irritate you, or you don't understand why we do it or, um, or it's interesting to you. Uh, that's, that's my, my MO. <laughs> that's my, that's interesting that you say that. I, I think there are some folks who are like a dog with a bone, right? They find one area mm-hmm. in pathology, like say one organ system or one kind of tumor, and they just keep doing projects about that because that's what interests them. But I tend to be uh-huh. a little more... Um, Potpourri. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like a, I'm living my experience. I'm signing out clinical right. cases and then I come to something and I go to look it up and I think, you know, the evidence on this is a little thin and I'm not really understanding why. Or there's this right. new technique that we can use to to, at, to answer this question in a way that it hasn't been answered before. So why don't we try that? Um, but mm-hmm. I think many residents do and trainees see it, you know, medical students see it as this um, ivory tower bigger than me. I couldn't possibly even open my mouth and say anything. And I think, you know, folks like you, and I've talked to people on my podcast before who demystify research and, and and say what you say, just don't be afraid, just get in there and answer some questions. And I think part of it is also, which I assume you had, is doing it alongside of somebody who's done it before, right? So they can help you sort of navigate the minefields and say, well, you know, you're not going to want to say that, you know, want to avoid that statistical method and we'll probably submit to this journal. Like you need somebody helping you with that kind of information. But um, really the passion for taking care of your patients is what it sounds like is driving you forward. So that's lovely. That's lovely. I like that. Um, And I... (laughs) appreciate that. Your, your stories, <laughs> you start up. I didn't want to have anything to do with research. I like that. Um, so like I said, the, the thing that drew me to your Twitter profile was a post you made about not only being able to be an attending physician, but also a fan of glitter, which I count myself among the ranks there. So, um, we should make like a glitter Twitter. <gasps> yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> I love it. Like, <laughs> there, like you probably understand you're much more Twitter proficient than me. There are like a list <laughs> on can we make a glitter twitter one absolutely <laughs> yes young fe- young attendings not just females anybody yeah. any you know gender uh or uh you know non-binary folks who want to be on the glitter twitter list that's absolutely. fine so uh, those yeah those who know me know that i love glitter i have a framed photo in my office um that says glitter isn't always an option i wear like eyeshadow most days that has a little bit of glitter in it that's not so noticeable um uh-huh. Just because it makes me happy, awesome. especially yeah. if I'm tired. Um, so <laughs> what uh, the, the picture I'm thinking of, I think your feet were propped up and you were wearing glittery yeah. shoes. So yes. can you, and it was in your office. So talk to me about glitter. Talk to me about your office or whatever you want to talk about. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, I, so this is actually, this reaches much deeper than just glittery shoes in a pink office. Okay. Um, okay. Of a surgeon for me, because I, and the reason why I, have this social media, what I try to be as, as open as possible is because as a medical student and even as a resident, 
Mm-hmm. I just never saw that. And all I saw was stuffy white coats. Stuffy, and yes. Yeah, stuffy white coats, really brown, scary offices, and like, mm-hmm. um, and like dance goes. <laughs> That's all I saw. And mm-hmm. while dance goes and brown offices are fine, I just, I didn't feel like I could be myself. And I felt like in order to become a surgeon, I was going to have to lose this feminine, pink, sparkly part of me um, in order Mm -hmm. to be taken seriously and in order to um, go anywhere and to be promoted and to like become something in academia. And I mean, as silly as it sounds, Twitter and social media and these other women surgeons who have come before me have really helped open that up and say, you, you don't have to hide the fact that you have kids. You don't have to hide the fact that you like pink. You don't have to wear a black suit. Um, and that's not entirely groundbreaking in the world, but it is in the world of surgery. That's still pretty, uh, yeah. you know, a pretty new thing. Um, and in medicine, so I, I would argue in general, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah, like where, you know, I, I remember one time a colleague of mine saw that I had glitter on my eyes and he got really close to my face and he went, I, I think there's glitter on your face. And I said, thank you. And he just, he just looked at me sideways like, hmm. And then just kept, kept talking about something else. He was very confused. So yeah. So you're, yeah. So you, you feel like it, uh, you've, you've become uh, some, found some solidarity on Twitter in terms of maybe yeah. being your, yourself. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And, and not only the solidarity, but also that, you know, if any, if any undergraduate student or medical student or whoever can run across it and be like, oh, there is, I'm not the only girl who wants to be a surgeon and likes sparkly things or pink things or pretty things. Like there's someone else and it's okay. And, um, she's, you know, an assistant professor and, and that's okay. <laughs> and it's, it's, yeah, and it's not, it doesn't mean you're not smart. It doesn't mean you're not the right. one, you know, responding yeah. to a code or whatever other scary right. things that you're doing that would make me have a full on panic attack. It's like, right. you can be those things <laughs> at the same time. I, I, yeah. I completely agree with you. Yeah. And I think, uh, like you said, there's this unspoken um, assumption that you'll sort of act and talk and dress a certain way. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I, I, so I, I don't know, it is my, like my life's work to be able to be who I am unapologetically and also in in all aspects. So I want to be able to do IC, ICU rounds and I want to be able to talk about the newest randomized control trial. And I want to be able to talk about cardiogenic shock versus, you know, septic shock. And I want to be able to say totes and, for sure. And like, that is what I do. I say totes and I want to be able to say that and it'd be okay. Um, while talking about really smart things, like that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You don't have to, uh, speak like a, like a, like a stuffy. Yeah. That's that's, that's important. (laughs) I, I completely agree with you. The other thing I think is essential to get through medical training, perhaps in your line of field and my line of field, in different circumstances, but for the same reason, mm-hmm. which is sometimes you need levity, right? I mean, yes. I don't know how I, I actually did moonlighting in the medical examiner's office. I wouldn't have made it through that if the people I worked with weren't around my age, lovely human beings who made me laugh when we were doing some yeah. pretty awful things to take care of our patients. But 
I don't think anybody can expect those of us in medicine to be perfectly serious all the time without something to kind of elevate our mood. I know you were talking about your office. I just recently found again, I had a little disco ball when I was a fellow and we would turn it on on Fridays as a reward to ourselves for making it through the week. We called him swivels because he swivels around in a circle. It's not profound. But anyway, I brought that back into work because I'm thinking there is no time in my life when I have need to do more swivels. Yes. You know, you need to come out of the, the storage unit and come back into my life because oh, I'm, great. you know, pushing 40, I'm an attending physician, I'm taking care of people all day long. And if I want to have a colorful light in my office sometimes. I yes. Don't the world. Yeah. Amen. And yeah. <laughs> totally. I, yes. I totally appreciate it. Well, I, th- that I love, I love all of it. So um, to, to close out, I like to talk to people about where they live. So you live in Lubbock, Texas, which I had to look up. I do <laughs> It's located in the Northwest corner of Texas. And it seems like you have trained also in Dallas and uh, forgive me. I don't know where, Oh, you were in Austin. Weren't you, weren't you at UT Austin? Yes. Um, so you've been all over, or at least as I understand it in many different parts of Texas. So, uh-huh. um, what, how are you finding your new city or do you even have a chance to explore given the conditions under which you have moved there and are working? I know, um, right? <laughs> yeah. What do you, what is your favorite thing to do in Lubbock, Texas? Yeah, I, oh, I mean, I work a lot for sure. Um, we're building a house, so that's Ooh. exciting. Um, in my closet, you would love it. I'll send you a picture later. It's really okay. pretty. <laughs> It has pink walls, not surprisingly. Nice. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, so building building the house takes up a lot of my time. I actually enjoyed interior design too. Um, Ooh, so I'm okay. having fun with that. I like I have kind of a modern and mid century modern aesthetic. Um, Me too. Not I, I'm usual. wearing my my jacket today is like a robin's egg oh, blue, which is my favorite color. It's a very 1960s oh. color. And I was excited that awesome. Joe, uh, Dr. Biden, uh, Joe Biden's yes. wife wore like a full outfit in that color yesterday. Oh, I was totally. like, yep, girl, yeah. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I like to shop. I'm not going to lie. I like pretty. Okay. That's too. fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of thing. And then my, um, my husband and I like to golf which is a pretty good socially distancing thing to do. So um, we joined a golf course here in town and um, yeah, we enjoy doing it. And, and I assume that um, Lubbock stays warm enough a lot of the months of the year to be able to golf. Yeah. It probably doesn't yeah. get like super cold there in the winter. So it's not too yeah. We have a couple of, of uh, cold snaps. <laughs> Uh but um otherwise it's it's not terrible it's doable yeah but your golfable months are probably like i don't know 10 out of the year at least maybe it gets too hot to golf in lubbock maybe that's it does get hot but we get get used to it we um we get in the car and we know you can't touch your seatbelt i don't miss that i was in north carolina for a while i don't miss that oh no no. yeah it doesn't get that hot in in rhode island but uh (laughs) sometimes there's too much snow on the golf course to play here you know what i'm saying so right That's very funny. So golfing, yeah, that's a good socially distant activity for sure. Yeah. Outside and and if you're close yeah. to anybody, you can wear a mask. So that probably exactly. assures reassures you. Um, it does. So, well, Brittany, it has been so nice talking to you. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wish we had talked about? I don't think anything so. you want to say just before that, we go. Uh-huh. Just that it's okay to take an unconventional path to get where you want to go, and if that unconventional unconventional path takes you in unexpected places, then embrace it and, um, and don't lose sight of the big picture. (laughs) Yeah. 
and don't and and yourself and you know I, yeah. I, I feel like what you've been doing is sort of uh just uh discovering new things but always coming back to your own path and it's really right. nice and I also think um such an advantage to young people uh interested in medicine now that there is twitter right that they can see someone like you yeah. and and these other uh, physicians who have come out of of twitter and some of them in the covid era to talk about their experiences and give you know positive reinforcement and evidence yes. to folks that there's not just one way to do it there's not just one way to look like or talk like right. and um yeah yes. that's really great plus Plus yeah. glitter, you know? Plus glitter. So, <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for doing this. I'll let you get back to your busy life, but I appreciate you coming on to talk to me. Have a good day. Yes. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye.